0: James, noticed from looking at your body of work that several of the films feature life and death pretty heavily. That's a prominent theme in a lot of your movies. Why is that when a lot of people might be too squeamish? They want to talk about other things, sci-fi, something happier, whatever.
1: Well I think that you can feature life and death in any genre. Um, I think that in many ways even if you look at screenwriting tropes that film is about life and death Uh, but for me I believe artistically it's important to tell the things that you know best and for me life and death and the themes of life and death are something that for better or worse have been very prominent in my life Uh, My father died when I was 13 of an unknown illness. The CDC was involved and thought it was perhaps the first American case of SARS, and so no one knew what to do with it. He went from perfect health to dying in a week, and they were concerned that myself, my mother, my sister, anyone he had come in contact with might carry it and might cause something infectious because They had tried literally all of the different antibiotics and all the different treatments and nothing worked, nothing responded. He just got constantly worse and worse and worse and he died the exact minute that he was admitted the previous week. So when you have something like that happen, and I had a very happy childhood for the record, it was a a wonderful time, a place where I was able to be imaginative and creative and, and foster that. My parents were both teachers, and growing up in a town of 123 people in rural South Georgia, I was able to live in a place that, community was very important which i think is also very important to film and imagination was nurtured and fostered because i wasn't living somewhere like los angeles where everything's already imagined for you where you're always with people of different cultures different backgrounds living at urban place uh, when you're in a rural community you have to imagine a lot of things for yourself and so for me going through that experience Uh, it really has left an impact on my life and also on what I want to do with my career because that was unexpected, that was something that was not planned and it made me realize at a very early age the value of time and what we do with it.
0: Hmm. So because you are a young director and you've traveled around the world, you've been involved with so many projects, do you think seeing how things can be taken away so quickly, so unexpectedly lit a fire under you to, to do so many things that maybe some would have planned around and waited for the perfect time when there really isn't a perfect time?
1: Well you're right, there isn't a perfect time for anything. I think that at the end of the day as a filmmaker you can make excuses for what you choose to do and choose not to do, but you've got to always have projects ready uh, at whatever stage in your career you might be at. Say you're waiting on a big project. Uh, so in the for over the past year I've been uh, waiting on a film that I've been developing for a while that looks like it's going to move forward this year. Uh, I ran off to make this uh, documentary A Few Things About Cancer, a small film that didn't need much of a budget uh, because I believe you always have to be making increases creating. Don't throw up barriers as to what you can and can't do. So certainly for me, in my own career, that experience with my father's death has really motivated me to constantly be creating and working all the time.
0: So it sounds like there was James life up until 13 and then a new chapter once 13 hit. And so that time, as dark as it was, how did it kind of maybe, did you you turn inward? Did you really start like going inward and forming this imagination because of that? You know, and I'm sure that it's a small town and maybe people are in your business, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, maybe they're helpful, maybe not. But how did that shape your sort of creativity in that time? Because I'm sure you could go many ways with it. Well, when I
1: was a kid I always was a pretty creative individual. I had spent most of my childhood writing and creating things, there's this wonderful game that uh, came out when Windows 95 was released uh, on our Packard Bell computer tower that was called Spider-Man Cartoon Maker. I don't know if anyone else played Spider-Man Cartoon Maker, but it was a wonderful game. Uh, All you did was you would take all of these stock uh, scenes, these stock locations, characters, visual effects and you would create movies out of them. Little animated 2D, very simple animation films. And so my sister and I would go on Spider-Man Cartoon Maker and make sequels upon sequels upon sequels to these chronologue stories using all these Spider-Man characters, and that's how I would tell stories. I really wish I could have figured out a way to capture all of those, because some of them are pretty hilarious in hindsight, but unfortunately, you have to be able to run the program to open up all the files. You can't export them like you can now. Uh, so that was you know, a big part of my childhood growing up, and then of course, uh, using my imagination in a small town, I would do things like uh, Tell stories. Uh, when I was growing up, my parents bought me a tape recorder, uh, and when we went driving on long trips, I would talk uh, about all these characters I had invented in my head and, and play like a radio play, uh, and they would record these on cassette tapes. So I had this little you know little thing that I'd keep in the back seat, and I would talk about these characters and do these things. Uh, one time we were coming back from my grandmother's house in Florida and I did a 10-hour funeral for one of the characters who was resurrected the next day. And somewhere that tape exists. I have no idea where it is, but I'm sure it's hilarious as well. Um, But those things were formative in my childhood. And so stories and, and doing things that had to do with storytelling was something that I was already doing. Once I became a teenager and once my father passed, Uh, I did turn inward for a time and and then started turning outward to kind of figure out ways to express myself and I think that has really uh, formulated the person I am today.
0: You had said earlier that screenwriting in a sense is its own version of life and death or it's about life and death in some sense.
1: Sure. Screenwriting isn't necessarily about physical life and death always, although it can be, depending on your story. But it is about the life and death of the character. Any time you set out to write a script, it's about the evolution and transformation of that character, if you do your job effectively. Uh, your character starts at point A and you're trying to get them to point B. So for your plot, through the character's journey, They have to evolve and transform into someone totally different uh, to take your audience on that same emotional journey that you're trying to lens through your character. So I believe that life and death uh, doesn't have to always be physical in a screenplay. It sometimes can be that emotional life and death too.
0: So I know you've made some short films before you made uh, a few of your features. How much money did you have to make your first film for to consider a real movie? Because, you know, there's like these litmus yeah. tests like, oh, well, that's not a real movie. It's only, you know, 8,000 or whatever. But at some point, w- at what point did you say this is a this is a real movie here and what was the budget? I
1: think that's an interesting question because a lot of people do put these litmus tests on what it means to make a real movie. And I think it's bullshit because... It's a real movie the second that people are watching it and the second that people are writing about it. And I think that is actually the second and most key component, especially in the digital era, when you have YouTube and Vimeo and all these digital platforms that aren't necessarily monetized. If you make a short film that someone writes about, and I mean film journalists, bloggers, all these various things, I think then you've made a real film. It has nothing to do with money because your career is about creating things and and evolving as an artist to tell stories that hopefully people are going to access and and enjoy. Uh, But if they don't know that you're making something, then you're not making a real film because it's not for an audience, it's then for yourself. So for me, the litmus test always has to do with when people respond to it. And and the first thing that I did where I really had some people respond was a short film that I made for less than a thousand dollars called The Car Wash uh, with an actress named Edith Ivey and it was a really neat experience. I just finished Uh, directing a piece in college for the Golden Age, about the Golden Age of Radio for the National Association of Broadcasters Education Wing in Vegas, and I had gone over the course of a semester while I was in college, full-time student, Monday through Thursday taking classes, Friday, Saturday, Sunday traveling around the country interviewing these folks on the weekends. It was strenuous, it was awful, and it was a very difficult eight weeks, but over the course of that period I met Edith, who uh, had just finished uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button with David Fincher. And uh, I had been writing this screenplay because I wanted to make a short narrative. And I thought that Dixie Carter was gonna play the lead because I had worked with her on the first film I ever produced, but she had just passed away. And so once I met Edith for this documentary that we were making, I said, you know, she's actually perfect for this role. And I sent her the screenplay terrified because she had just worked with David Fincher and here am I, lowly college student. And uh, she read the screenplay and sent me a message back and said, you know, I can't believe that anyone under 55 wrote this material and I will do it for free. And I was mind boggled by it. Now, of course, I did not have her do it for free. I did a SAG minimum because I think that's ethical. Uh, Paid her $100 for two days and we made the film, and it went to festivals, people liked it, it's got a lot of views online, and uh, that would, I would say, be my first legitimate film, Uh, but the films I made afterwards did end up getting more press and such, but I think that's the progression you make.
0: And you said she taught you how to work with actors. She did. How so?
1: Well, Edith, working with Edith, now doesn't seem intimidating but then it was extremely intimidating because here's an actress whose first project was the pilot episode of the guiding light when it was on the radio in the 40s it might have been early 30s but it was early early 50 years of work who's worked in everything from radio to television to most recently at that time with david fincher uh it was terrifying for a college student who hadn't graduated from college yet and i was trying to figure out you know how am i going to work with this woman who has far more experience than me that just happens to like this screenplay that i wrote and so when she arrived you know i had someone go pick her up at the airport i booked her a nicest hotel in town you know made sure she got the vip treatment as best a college student could give And when she arrived to set, I was instantly disarmed because she knew it. She knew the script by heart. Uh, It was 10 pages, but she could recite every single line because she had rehearsed far before she arrived. So the first thing she taught me is that if you wanna work with an actor, Clarify your vision at the onset and make sure that you're gonna work with someone who takes that role just as seriously. There are a lot of actors that don't take their roles seriously, that don't read a role and really try to dive into it. And so for me, Edith taught me first and foremost, find those people that really care about what they're doing because that's going to make your work better. Uh, It's not just a paycheck. So the second thing she taught while she's on set is that While I may not have the experience that she did, she deferred those things to me, which empowered me as a director to direct my college-aged crew to give me respect, which I thought was also very important because at the time, you know, in college, we're taking film classes where people cycle around. You know, I might direct one project and then run the sound on another one, shoot the next one. You're kind of learning different skills. Uh, and people don't take it seriously because it's a class, but because Edith Ivy, who has 50 years of experience, who just worked with David Fincher showed up, uh, suddenly I had authority to do what I wanted to do. Uh, So I think those early lessons for me were very formative and kind of taught me that it doesn't matter how much experience someone else on your crew or someone else that that you're directing might have, it only matters that you as director have authority over your set and that there's a singular cohesive vision that everyone can follow and respect
0: how long was that shoot? I watched it by the way and it was excellent. I loved how there was heart in it and and it was based on something that you kind of experienced yourself in a waiting room somewhere.
1: That's true. I I experienced the car wash, I, I got the idea for it because I was sitting in a car wash one day and one elderly lady looked over at me and said one brief sentence about loneliness, how she was just lonely and wanted someone to talk to, and we didn't really go much past that, but that stuck in the back of my head while I was writing the screenplay. And We actually shot the car wash in two six-hour days, which was really intense uh, because it's very dialogue-driven, almost like a one-act play, uh, and to do that, it was very important to be very efficient and quick because with Edith, we had a very limited amount of time to work with her. and we also had 10 pages of script to go through and something that's dialogue driven, it's very much about the performance and how you block the performers to get the dialogue maximized for the viewer. And so that probably was the most challenging thing, working with a 12 hour shooting period.
0: Hmm. So when you say blocking, uh, I know she was sitting down mm-hmm. in I believe all of the film, she right, does. so um, how, how are you figuring out things around that, just someone that's sitting in one spot?
1: Sure. Well, as a working with my cinematographer on that project, uh, who was also a college-age student like myself, you know, this was the most challenging thing we'd ever done because I thought as a college student when I was writing the screenplay, some of my peers were writing projects that were way too ambitious for what we had the capacity to do. You know, they were writing scenes that had visual effects and they were doing things that had action sequences. And I felt like as a director at a college age, that I did not have the resources or capacity to direct something like that. So to do something character-driven, something that was someone sitting down, someone in a contained space, I thought that I had a better opportunity to make something that would work better at that time in my career. So the way we blocked it I was trying to figure out how can we make this compelling uh, from the standpoint of the dialogue because one of my favorite filmmakers is Sidney Lumet who directed my favorite film network and I think about that film a lot when I'm, I'm looking at compositions of scenes how to set up a scene in a way that motivates the dialogue and the performance. And so in The Car Wash I wanted to start wide and get closer and closer and closer and closer as the film got more intimate because I thought that would be a way to Better communicate what was going on with the character. And so in doing that, it enabled us to have a simpler process to maximize our shooting schedule, but also to divide and block out the script in a way that made sense dramatically.
0: So a thousand dollars, and that's what it took to take for her uh, two days being there, was that your own money?
1: That was my own money. Wow. I, I, you know, in the early days, I self-financed a lot of my work. I would do weddings. I would do, I did children's audio book. I did anything I could find to finance the projects I wanted to work on. So I could buy a camera, buy a microphone. Now it's different now. This was like 2006 and to like 2007. Now you have smartphones that can shoot 2K or 3K with certain apps. Uh, But we didn't have that back in the early days of the 2000s, you know. We had to buy expensive DV cameras or cheap DV cameras that didn't have very good quality and then you'd have to buy the $1000 Final Cut Pro system to work with it and the laptop that could handle it. It's a lot more expensive then and so I just would find any way I could to buy those pieces of equipment and to buy those pieces of software so as my storytelling developed that I could do better things.
0: So the first film, the car wash film, was there any plans to sell that or you realize this is a film that's going to be sort of my calling card?
1: Yes, I, I never thought at the very beginning of films I was making as things that were going to be sold. I think that a lot of filmmakers now, when they make their shorts or make their web series or whatever it is they're making to kind of break into the film business, they always have an eye towards monetizing it. And I'm not saying you don't need to monetize your work, everybody needs to pay your bills. I like living comfortably, I'm sure a lot of other people do too. but. I think when you're starting out you've got to find other ways to monetize your life so you can advance your career because if at the onset you're thinking about films like The Car Wash or Followed or some of my earlier work, uh, if you have that as an eye towards monetization, you may not get anyone watching it because no one knows who you are. You don't have a track record, you don't have any press, you don't have any uh, authority to start charging people for your work because you're starting out, you're beginning. Just like if you were going to a nine-to-five job and you were stepping in the office in an entry-level position, that's what you are as a starting filmmaker in an entry-level position. And so, if you give away your work, like the car wash or like followed, all those different things then you give yourself the opportunity to get as many eyeballs as possible. It's a lot easier with the internet and social media these days than that used to be, so that people watch it, hopefully people write about it, people talk about it and share it, So then hopefully it might get in the hands of the right person or the right press outlet that will help you to make your next project. But I think that if you worry about monetization at the onset, as I did not with the car wash, uh, then you're going to start uh, putting roadblocks into your career at an age where you shouldn't be.
0: So let's take some of those classmates that you may have known Mm -hmm. back at at Georgia Southern who wanted to, from the onslaught maybe sounds like, and you know, don't see why not, but make this half a million dollar feature film right out of the gate. Somehow you knew that, you know, I need to take smaller chunks to do this. Were there others that you saw try to just jump off that diving board and what happened? Sure.
1: I mean, I've seen many filmmakers in in my career. Well, one of the things that you see as a filmmaker, I think, and, and this is actually one of the hardest things I think you have to swallow is when you start as a filmmaker, there's a lot of people that want to do it. Everybody wants to work in film. Everybody wants to work independently and say, hey, I don't go to a nine to five job every day. Uh, I write all day or I film all day or I edit all day. And as you get older and as you get more experienced, slowly the people you started with, some of them start peeling off, some of them disappear from the business entirely. And then eventually there's only a handful of you that started that started at the same point. And I think that what separates people is the fact that you have to take those tiny steps and not those big leaps. If you try to make a feature film before you've made a series of shorts or documentaries or whatever it is, you may not have the storytelling capacity to make a feature film, because a feature film is a much different ball game than making a short. You can make a really effective short film, but if you don't understand the progression and the logistics of character development, of narrative arcs, of shooting out of order to put something back in order and make sense dramatically, uh, that's a difficult task. And I think if you just start out doing that, not to say that there aren't examples of people that have done that effectively and successfully, uh, but I think for the vast majority of folks, including some people I started with, they didn't have that capacity and thus they didn't get attention and weren't able to make their second project.
0: So you were just talking about the people that sort of you started with and then slowly some of them stay and some of them go in terms of making films. It almost reminds me of a line and it might have been Edith Ivey in Followed who talks about um, the strong will rise and the weak will falter and that this is a harsh look at social and economic structures, but it's similar to nature, and nature is harsh. And I thought, I'm I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but Mm -hmm. I I thought that was a great line, and I'm not sure if it was her character. character, Okay, so it almost reminds me of a filmmaking Darwinism, basically. And so when you say this, if we were to label some strong and some weak, and I realize that's sort of a harsh statement there, but when it comes to filmmaking, what would you term the weak and what would you term the strong
1: that is a very good question actually i hadn't really thought about that before but you're you're exactly right it's not harsh it's reality there are people that are strong and there are people that are weak the difference is as a filmmaker if you're trying to determine what makes a strong one and what makes a weak one i think what it really has to do with is people that see their career as a short-term thing and a long-term thing, and that is the differentiator. Uh, When you make a project, it's not just about that project if you're thinking long-term. It's thinking about how is this project going to enable me to make the next thing, and then the thing after that, and then the thing after that. It's about climbing that ladder, ascending the staircase, because each piece that you make, assuming that you do a good job and people like it, will enable you to do something else different in the future. But if you see your career as a short-term game, if you just see it as, oh, I have to make this project, you make that project, and then you have no idea what you're gonna make next, or what kind of film you wanna make next, or if you can't identify what kind of films you like to make, Uh, as I said earlier, for me, I'm drawn to films that are about loss and identity. If you're a filmmaker that can't say very succinctly what kind of projects you make, no one will take you seriously because they don't know what to hire you for. So it's very important, I think, if you want to perceive yourself as being a strong maker filmmaker, to not only have uh, an identity for the kind of films you like to make, but also have a plan and a progression for which you wish to jump off.
0: So let's take two filmmakers, filmmaker A and B. Both of them, uh, the, both, both works are amazing. They're incredibly uh, creative people, talented, different things like that, but what would be the telltale signs that one is probably going to fall off in some sense and the other one's going to keep going?
1: I think that the telltale signs honestly have to do with your motivation. Uh, A lot of filmmaking is stamina And, and if you're in the middle of production and you're already exhausted or tired of the film that you're doing. Uh, I'm always astounded when I talk to filmmakers who are in post-production on a film and they're talking about, oh I can't wait for this to be finished. I understand editing is hard, filmmaking is a hard, long, strenuous journey, but when you aren't engaged or involved in the process that you're actively involved with, and that can be in post-production, and production, and prep, or even in publicizing the film that you're making, you're not going to make it as a filmmaker, because it's about that long journey. It may take you three or four years to make a feature film, and I don't mean shoot it, I mean develop it, shoot it, edit it, publicize it, release it. It's a multi-step process, and I think that that is the indicator of if you're gonna make it or not, if you can make it across each of the finish lines, not just one.
0: Right. And not tire easily.
1: And not tire easily. You've got to constantly be fighting. If you're not an advocate for your own film, no one else will be.
0: Right. Were there times where, where you were tested in that uh, you wondered, is this really for me, and then you got back on course? Because there are a lot of things that are surprising. Everyone thinks, oh, being on set, yeah, it's going to be a long day, but it's cool, and you feel, you know, whatever, important, glamorous. But then those long hours in the editing bay or problem solving you know, things aren't working out, something's wrong with the film, like the, the actual physical, you know, whatever, the, the, the mechanics of the, the project. Were there times where you were tested and then you had to sort of like write yourself?
1: I think there's, unless someone has some incredible piece of luck, I think that on every film there's a moment where you question yourself. You question, can I do this? Do I have the capacity to do this thing? And what separates you from other filmmakers, if you're successful, is that you have the capacity to troubleshoot and, and get past the roadblock. Uh, it may have to do with uh, a location. Perhaps you're filming somewhere and a location doesn't work the way that you thought it was going to work. Perhaps someone's late. Perhaps an actor's having a meltdown. That happens on film sets. I've had experience with that before. Uh, you can't stop the entire production because any of those things happen. You have to figure out a way to chart a course forward because especially when you're working in independent film, you don't have the resources nor the time to stop because something doesn't work. And so I think for most filmmakers, if you want to identify, and even for me, uh, you've got to be able to say, okay, here's my problem. Here are some outcomes if this thing doesn't work out the way I think it does. And what path is going to be the best way for me to fix the problem? And that's what you've always got to do. So for me, um, it's always been, I've never had a moment where, oh, I don't want to do film or this is not for me, but I have certainly had moments where I have questioned my capacity to do them. But what's I think made me successful professionally is being able to figure out what the solutions are.
0: I know there's a term in self-help. It's called uh, low frustration tolerance, Mm -hmm. which I think all of us suffer from from time to time. It sounds like being able to move through like these tedious things that really would get a lot of people down. Mm -hmm. Sounds like the secret to a lot of it, because a lot of people I hear that give up. It's over some incident Mm -hmm. that happened and they say, you know what? Forget it. This is I'm done with it.
1: Well, I, I think about my grandmother a lot, um, and her. my, my uh, grandmother died a few years ago, but one of the things that she always used to say about her husband or grandfather is that she never went to bed angry with him. And whether or not that was true or not in their 60 years of marriage, that I don't know. While that doesn't necessarily apply to everyone, I think that it certainly can be applied to your professional career and not just your personal life. And so for me, if I get frustrated or angry, as we all do on a film set it, maybe with the person you're working with, it could be an actor, it could be a producer, it could be someone on your crew, if you go to bed angry with them and if you hold on to that anger, it's very easy to lose sight of the big picture. And so for me, I think you almost have to take this zen approach to say shit happens. You do it, you deal with it, and then you move on from it. Because if you're constantly holding on to the bad, you can't focus on the good.
0: Can you share a specific example of how your first few short films helped get a feature film off the ground for you?
1: Um, Well, the first few short projects that I did, I was very fortunate to have a couple of great publications around the world write about them. Uh, I was able to get in some wonderful places and have people watch them. And because those two things happened, there was some respect for the work that I was doing. And it attracted some attention from various producers and I started getting some phone calls about projects. And when that started happening, I knew that Uh, I had some options on the table which allowed me to be a little selective about the things that I choose because, like I was saying earlier, I see my career as as a ladder or a staircase that you're kind of building up with each project and you're kind of figuring out what direction you want to take. And the choices you make directly impact which staircase you ascend. I think without directing the shorts that I did, those got some international attention from various publications. I remember one day I woke up and Followed was featured in Spain's biggest uh, horror magazine, uh, There, it's a horror blog for Photogramas, which is their main film publication. And I thought that was wild because I didn't send it to them, they just found it. And when things like that happen, you start realizing that people are watching your work and paying attention to what you're doing. And without those experiences, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to direct Desires of the Heart because I wouldn't have had the experience or the attention.
0: So there's a quote at the end of your demo reel, Mm -hmm. and it says, as a filmmaker, you have the opportunity to make projects of quality, different films that mean something, that is what I look for. When you were deciding on which project to work on next, do you spend time thinking of the business side of it or the creative side of it?
1: I think that it wouldn't be honest to say that, a filmmaker never thinks about the business side of a film. Because if you see your career not only as a progression but as something that you're monetizing that you can pay your bills with, you know, I I do film exclusively, that's what I do. Um, I couldn't afford to pay my bills if I didn't think about what the business capacity is for a film that I'm making. Uh, So that's certainly a part of it. Uh, But I think at the end of the day, if it's not something that speaks to you creatively, it's not a project you should take, even if they are throwing lots of money at you. uh, Because you probably won't do a good job telling that story. It may not be something that's equipped to your life experiences and so I think that as a filmmaker and any time a filmmaker is evaluating what film they should make, they of course should think about the business side, what is the potential for this film, but also is this film something creatively that I'm equipped to tell? And if you can't answer yes to both of those questions you probably shouldn't do it.
0: Have there been things that you've turned down?
1: Absolutely. Oh, okay. oh yes, I've turned down numerous projects. Uh, I, I've. Yes, I've turned down numerous projects. I will sometimes read a screenplay and it's a complete disaster. And I look at that and I say, okay, is it worth fixing this story? Is this story fixable? And if the answer is no, I'm not gonna waste my time with it. And sometimes that has to do with the personality of the person on the other side, just as much as it does to the content that they presented me with. Uh, If I don't think that the person on the other side of the phone or the email or the table I'm sitting at is gonna be willing to collaborate and talk and evolve I'm not gonna have a further conversation about working on that project with them uh, because I know it's going to be hell on earth for me and I like to have pleasant filming experiences.
0: What are some of the telltale signs? Is it is it a resistance? Is it maybe a defensiveness of No, that's fine. I don't know why you saw it that way and and there's no flow kind of back and forth.
1: There is an incredible capacity for people not to see flaws in their own work and I'm sure all of us put on blinders. You know, I can tell you things about all of my work that I wish that I had done better in certain scenes or in different moments. I would not be honest if I sat here and told you that I thought everything I've ever made was perfect because I certainly don't but I think that when you're sitting with someone or talking with someone that does, that is an indicator that you don't wanna work with them because they don't have the capacity to grow or evolve or change. Uh, You might be Aaron Sorkin and a brilliant, brilliant writer but even Aaron Sorkin can collaborate with people and I think if Aaron Sorkin can do it, so can you.
0: So desires of the heart? how did you get the job to direct the film?
1: Well, it's funny. I was actually in Los Angeles for the two weeks prior to my interview for Desires of the Heart and the production manager of the film called me because uh, I had known him vaguely that the director who was supposed to make the film had been hospitalized in India for drinking a handle of whiskey a day and smoking four packs of cigarettes a day and his health was in dire shape, which understandably so. And so I was here in Los Angeles having meetings with some pretty fantastic companies and they kept calling me from Georgia and I said, no, I can't can't come interview for this and can't come do this, can't come do this. And then finally the producer calls me and says, well, I really want to meet with you and I will come back to Georgia when you return from Los Angeles because at the time I was living in Georgia. And so I get there and she flies down from New York where she was living and we have like this 18 hour over two day marathon meeting where we talk about the screenplay, talk about the movie, talk about all these different things. And at the end of these two days, I'm exhausted because we had gone through everything. And I said, well, you know, if you, however you choose to hire a director for this film I wish you best of luck and she said at the end of it well I've decided I want you to direct it after our two days and that's how I got involved with the film simply because I happen to know the production manager that thought my work was suitable for the picture.
0: Part of the film is shot in Georgia? Mm-hmm. It's we, Savannah? Or yes we in shot America?
1: two weeks in Savannah and about a month in Rajasthan, India.
0: Wow yes. okay. From your observations, what can Bollywood teach American filmmakers and vice versa?
1: It's a great question. I have never worked with harder working people than the folks that I worked with in Rajasthan. We brought in about 200 crew members from Mumbai by train, so they had to take this three-day train ride to get to Rajasthan because Rajasthan's on the India-Pakistan border so it's way up there and they brought the camera they brought everything you know everything comes from Mumbai on train and they would do things that I have never seen any crew in America do where anything you ask them to do anything that needs to be done it's done instantaneously quickly and quite efficiently um, I would take those people on the crew that we had with me anywhere. They were fantastic. And I think that we can certainly learn something about their work ethic because if people worked as hard as they do there on films, I think you'd see a lot of independent films here get made a lot faster.
0: Hmm. So efficiency mm-hmm. and readiness to help maybe Absolutely. know like well that's not my job type right. of thing.
1: There is no there's not that type of job there's only let's get it done and that to me was quite impressive.
0: And then in return what can American filmmakers teach Bollywood?
1: Well I think that American film and Bollywood film are two very very different things. Uh, Culturally they have different identities in many ways and with Desires of the Heart I was trying to make a American film that had Bollywood elements, not the other way around. uh, Because I think that to an American audience, most Bollywood films aren't accessible to them for various cultural reasons. So I would say if a Bollywood film wants to be successful out of India, they could learn something about the way that uh, Western filmmakers tell stories. Because for better or worse, Uh, Western filmmaking is what has influenced the global film market outside of Bollywood. Bollywood is its own thing. And that's why their films, they make so many films. They make a thousand films a year, but only maybe a tenth of them or less are going to find a market outside of India. And that's why, because they're really not designed for a Western audience. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's how it is.
0: Do you see the same exuberance Uh, in America for our uh, stars or actors as you do with the Bollywood uh, stars in India?
1: Bollywood stars are on a whole different level. Uh, Val Lauren, who's the American lead in the film, he and I would laugh about that because Golshan Grover, who's our Bollywood lead over there, is a huge star in India. And we were filming one day in the middle of the desert in this town that has no running water, cow paddy huts, they easily couldn't find a movie theater because they don't have electricity and the closest one might be hours away. And when we arrived to film in their village with Golshan Grover, the entire village showed up because they all knew who Golshan was. I have a fantastic picture of that thing on Instagram somewhere with like hundreds of people swarming Val and Golshan in this chair while they're waiting for the next scene to be shot. And. That was incredible to observe, that people that don't have televisions and don't have a theater that they can go easily see a film at, Uh, would know instantaneously that this guy is a huge Bollywood star and know him and know what he's from because they read the magazines and they see the different things without going to the theater or without watching them on television. That to me was fascinating and that's the kind of cultural differences that I think you see between Indian film and American film because if Tom Cruise were to show up people would be very excited to see him don't get me wrong uh, but I don't know if you would see that kind of excitement in the far-flung regions of the United States like you do in India. The entire town literally shows up.
0: So that's how they're finding out about the movies and the, f- and the stars is through magazines through or Through magazines, papers?
1: yeah. It's, uh, which I thought was really interesting, you know, being in a town that has no electricity that all of them knew who he was. And a remote town, not even somewhere close to a city. Uh, they don't have cars and so that was fascinating to me.
0: Let's say a group of uh, Georgia Southern Mm -hmm. filmmakers, your alma mater, had made a bunch of short films and had yet to make a feature. So they're all from your school and maybe you're going to address the class and give them advice. Um, what would you tell them about distributing short films compared to distributing a feature film or maybe there's absolutely no comparison They're
1: two different... Well I think there is a comparison to be had. Um, I actually have had this conversation with students at Georgia Southern. I'm on the advisory board so I go back periodically to talk and uh, one of the things that I think the differentiator between distributing a short film and distributing a feature film is monetized, because a short film in general, if you do it right, you don't really have to monetize it, unless it's a, you know, $50,000 effects-driven thing that you want CAA to watch that's a different kind of project, but if you're making a standard short film or web series or something of that nature, like I said earlier, distribution is not, as much of an issue, I don't think, because you're just trying to attract attention. But when you make a feature film, there's money involved. And when there's money involved, distribution is extremely important because if you don't have a distribution plan, pathway, or someone to purchase the picture, someone's going to lose a lot of money. And if that someone loses a lot of money, it's not very good for your career.
0: So let's take that $50,000 short film. Let's say it's now their second film that they want to make, short film. Are you advising them to do that? and they want to tour the festival circuit with it. Does that make sense?
1: I think it depends. And I know that's not a clear-cut answer. Long and short answer, I don't think that most people are equipped to go make a $50,000 visual effects driven short film that they're going to take to film festivals and try to get the attention of a major agency to sign them to a studio picture that's going to be a multi-million dollar event film. There are examples but I think they're very few if you start quantifying the number of people that get to do that versus the number of people that actually attempt it. Uh, I think at the end of the day, you're better served unless you happen to be a visual effects genius, and if you are, more power to you, go do it. Uh, But if you do not have the capacity or the skills to do some of that yourself, Spend the money in other ways. You can make a $50,000 feature film instead of your $50,000 short visual effects driven film that might enable you to do something better that you probably could monetize by selling it yourself and put yourself in a better position to advance your career.
0: Would you say there's a cap on what someone should spend on a short film? You know, let's say this is their second film, and they're they're hoping to do that. They're hoping to tour the festival circuit with it, and 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 get the attention. Is there is there like a minimum, or excuse me, a maximum? Like no more than ten thousand. Even though that is still a lot of money. It still is a lot of money. money.
1: I, I think that there isn't such a thing as a maximum you should spend on a short film, but I think there is a maximum you should spend as to what you can afford, and as to what your story needs to serve it well. Uh, I think that when you're making a short or even a micro budget feature for that matter, whatever it is, You always need to treat your budget as, what is the lowest amount I can make this film for that will best serve the story and not thwart my attempt to make it the best I can. And that doesn't matter what you're trying to make, but whatever it is, make sure you can afford it. Because say, for example, you do spend $10,000 on that short film, you've made the short film, but that's not the end of your expenses, is it? Now you have film festival submissions. Say you get into some festivals, you probably want to go to those festivals to network, to meet other producers, to meet other filmmakers, uh, to do some press for it, to do the things that are going to give your movie attention. How much money did you budget for that? Did you not budget money for it? Now you have another couple thousand that you've added to your total budget. Those are things that you have to ask yourself at the onset, and if you only have ten thousand dollars to make the film, that isn't just production, that's all of those other fees that come with it. So you really have to think, what is the lowest amount I can tell this story effectively at, so I can enable myself to get to my next goal? Hmm.
0: But then have more money in reserves, or mm-hmm. maybe if it's going to be a year before you actually finish the project, have that ready for press, you know, um, festivals. You know, maybe even hiring a publicist, things sure. like that. Factor a- that in. And
1: those are all factors that any filmmaker that takes their career seriously should consider. Now, if you're just doing this amateur, if you just want to make films because you like doing it as a hobby, you don't need to worry with all that. But if you want to be a professional filmmaker, if you want to be a professional writer, director, actor, those are factors you absolutely have to account for.
0: When you do come in to speak to some of these Georgia Southern students, are these things that they are aware of or do you, are they thinking of that, that extra money to do traveling or? or for distribution, things like that, they, they just want to make the film, They just it's sort of like this rock star life and it sounds fun. It's well, Here's <laughs> the thing,
1: it doesn't matter if you're a Georgia Southern student or a UCLA student or a NYU student, uh, no college students, well that's maybe not true, most college students do not think about the totality of the picture because when they're in film school or when they're learning how to tell a story or whatever it is they're doing, they get taught the mechanics of it. They get taught this is a three-act structure. This is how you compose a frame. This is how you run the camera. This is how you turn the sound on. And you learn these technical things. But no one, and most schools do not teach the practical elements of what it means to be a film professional. And that's a very, very different distinction. And that's something that unfortunately most of our schools let students learn once they get out into the real world and it's something that should be taught in our film schools before they ever leave college. Because if they want to do that, they need to understand how to see their career as a trajectory, not a short-term thing.
0: Why do you think that's not taught? I mean, that's an excellent point. Why do you think that w- w- the, the technical aspect, excuse me, why do you think that the non-technical, I can't even say this, um, why do you think that that's not taught? And if you were to start a class, in that vein. How would you teach it? What would be part of the curriculum?
1: Sure. Well I think it's not taught because most people in academia haven't worked in the real world for a long time. There's nothing wrong with that inherently because most professors that is their their life calling and their passion and that's fine. But it's very hard for you to talk about making a living when you've made your living teaching for decades, right? So if I were to teach a class about how to make films and how to make a career making films outside of college, I would start out with finding things that are complementary. One of the first things that has happened with the advent of the internet and with the advent of all these new platforms that are emerging, uh, at the beginning people thought they could make videos and they could edit videos on their own. But something people have discovered with photography, with video, with graphics is that if you're not experienced and don't know what you're doing, you tend to not do a very good job. So people now are paying money for people to make videos and tell stories about their brands, about their ideas, about their concepts, and give them the opportunity to hire people to do it. Those are great ways, I think, to start out as a filmmaker because you may not be telling the narrative or documentary story you want to tell, but you are learning how to tell a story and how to tell it effectively for someone else, which is an excellent way to not only pay your bills, to do the thing that you got your education in or that you aspire to be doing as opposed to working at Starbucks or driving for Uber. You're actively making something that is a story, whatever that story is. And what that does is if you save your money, you can run off to go make your short films and run off to go make your documentaries because you now have more experience working with someone. So when you go to make your feature film and you're answering not only to a producer or a studio or a financier, you're learning to work with clients as a filmmaker and then you're able to understand the entire matrix of the people that you have to work with professionally.
0: Is there a place that a filmmaker could go to learn these things?
1: I think there isn't a specific place, unfortunately. I think it comes in real life. I think that comes with experience, trial and error. Um, That in some ways is something that I guess is a good thing that's not taught because if you did even if you were taught how to do all of those things and while I think some of those skills would be very helpful for people to learn the classroom life in many ways is always the best experience and so I think that when you figure out how to do something the wrong way it makes you appreciate and learn how to do things better the right way.
0: From your own life uh, and your own experiences with filmmaking what's something that you learned the hard way that you now correct or you now see-through right away, Mm -hmm. red flags, whatever, but it took you a little bit.
1: I think that one of the most difficult things I've ever learned as a filmmaker, and this comes back to something we were talking about earlier, is that when you first start out, there's all these people you tend to work with, and you work with them on repeat, not because you are necessarily working with the best people, but because they're the people that are accessible to you. And what happens is, over time, you start working with the same people over and over and over again. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, but eventually there comes a point where different talents and different skill sets are not helpful to broader goals. And what you have to do is you have to start letting some people go and replacing them with people that are better and that will make you better and that is I think one of the hardest most difficult things for you to swallow because it's not just professional it's also personal and I think on every project you work on you pick up one person that you say that person needs to come back to my next film that person needs to come back to my next film but if you get to the point where you start recycling every single person on every single project your work instantly becomes stale because there are no new ideas being injected into it. So as a filmmaker you've got to constantly be finding ways to reinventing yourself and one of the first ways you do that is by finding fresh new faces and fresh new ideas.
0: Is that why there's sort of a thin line between friendships and then business contacts or work relationships in this industry and how do you not blur the lines there.
1: Well there's a very thin line between friendships and business relationships and I think that especially in independent films specifically it's very easy for those two things to blend. I'm not saying or advocating for you to be completely distanced with everyone you work with. You, It's okay to be friendly and accessible and, and, and friends with the people you work with but you can't allow your friendship to lose sight of the professional things that have to occur. And that may mean that someone you work with does something wrong or does something bad and you have to reprimand them for it. If your friendship and your professional life are so intertwined that you can't have a serious conversation with them uh, without them being upset or offended or whatever it is, that's not a healthy professional relationship because then you can't distill those two things. You've really got to make sure that when you're working with people that you're enabling yourself to, to have those lines drawn.
0: James, what are the first five things you do when you arrive on set?
1: Mm-hmm first five things. I don't think anyone has asked me that question before. Uh, The first thing that I like to do is see the actors if they are on set because I want to talk to the actors about what's going on for the day. If I've done my job as a director, the crew should already know. They should know what the shots are going to be because I've already made the list. They should know what the blocking is because we've probably already talked about it in advance in pre-production. So I'm going to talk to the actors first make sure that we're on the same page creatively, make sure they understand what the dramatic arc is for the day and where we are in that dramatic arc. So for example, say we're shooting a film half, uh, scene halfway through the film, uh, but it's only the first week of filming, what point does the actor need to be at emotionally so that way we can work with them later on and earlier in the narrative story? That's very important. So I like to talk to actors about that. Second thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go talk to my DP and the crew respectively. Um, I need to make sure that the blocking that we talked about, that the uh, shots that we talked about, that the set, all of those things are in order so that way whatever we might have discussed in pre-production is being in fact executed for production third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Video Village and see how everything is established. Is my iPad there? I work with my iPad uh, for the screenplay and various things like that and kind of see if everything is set up for me to be comfortable. Do I have water? Do I have coffee? Do I have a banana? Things that are going to enable me to sit there and really watch it as I'm going back and forth between the actors and video fourth thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go visit the DIT because I wanna see what we filmed uh, previously and how it's coming out. Uh, one of the things that I deploy in my process, there's a guy I work with that has a van uh, that uh, goes anywhere you go if you're filming on location and deploys all of the footage to a wireless iPad network so you can see what you've shot in previous days and see if it's matching. So if I need to match something in the scene we're about to shoot, I might wanna see, okay, well, where did we exit in this previous scene and where are we going to come into in this one? Uh, That enables me to remember things visually that I may not remember just trusting my head. And then finally, I'm going to sit down with the producer and chat about how things have been going and see how uh, we are for scheduling, see how we are for timing and even for budget. Uh, You know, what kind of things that we Uh, have spent money on? What kinds of things are we going to need to spend money on in the future days ahead? And do we need to make any cuts or revisions or changes? Uh, Because if I find out that there's a piece of equipment or a a lens or whatever it is that I need for a future day and for various reasons the budget has changed or we can't get that because of a scheduling issue or whatever it is, I need to modify that in advance so it's not an issue that we have to deal with on the day of. And those are the five things I would do.
0: In your experience what are some of the biggest time wasters on set that could really be eliminated?
1: I think that at the end of the day the biggest way to waste time on a film set is not to communicate your vision. And communicating your vision is something that has to be executed across all levels of production, from your above-the-line crew to the -the below-the-line crew, to everyone from the production assistant to the caterer. Everyone needs to understand what your goals are as a filmmaker. Uh, Because if you don't explain that clearly to everyone, if everyone doesn't realize what direction they're paddling the boat in, you're gonna have a lot of questions, you're gonna have a lot of stops and pauses throughout production because one arm doesn't know what the other arm is doing. It's very, very important for you as a director to really clarify that to everyone and make sure that everyone understands what that thing is. And while you're doing it, communicating in a way that's professional and polite. Uh, I've seen other directors that I think treat their crews in ways that are not acceptable. You've got to be polite. I think it's very important to treat everyone with respect all the way from the bottom to the top. Uh, You treat your producer just as well as you treat the PA because when you do that you're not only creating a good work environment for your team but you're also making sure that everyone feels respected and wanted. Uh, So for me it's those two things.
0: James you said in a prior interview that if someone's work is good then you will get noticed and that there's really no wall surrounding Hollywood, that it's perfectly possible to gain access to talented people within the industry through simplicities as good manners and good writing skills? I think so. Um, The southern charm and and man, no, there's really, there is a difference. You know, thank you, please, little things that people notice. Sorry to cut you off.
1: Oh no, uh, I have no reason to apologize. I think that there is no such thing as a wall around Hollywood. And I know a lot of people would disagree with that notion, but I can tell you even from my own experience, I've met some fantastic people through things as simple as Twitter. Uh, You know, I might follow an executive on Twitter that's at a major studio or at a network or talent agency and I've had meetings just because they like me on Twitter where we'll message back and forth, they might retweet what I share, they might respond to something I say and I'll just send them a direct message and say hi I really enjoy our conversations, can we get a coffee, can I meet with you or whatever it is and I've met a lot of people that way. I think that goes a long way and so I think for me it goes all the way back to when I first started working in film. The very first thing I ever did was this frankly, terrible documentary on the Western character actor, Dub Taylor. Not terrible in the sense that it wasn't an ambitious or worthy project, but technically, none of us had no idea what we were doing. So we're just running around with a camera at 16, trying to figure out how to make this thing work. And one of the things I did from my town of 123 people was write letters and emails to talent agencies uh, all over Hollywood, CAA, William Morris, uh, Endeavor at the time, uh, and asked them if Mr. Inexperience could come interview their clients. And 80% of them said no, or wouldn't respond. But 20% of them said yes, And at age 16, 17, 18. uh, Myself and the team that did that got to interview John Mellencamp, Dixie Carter, David Zucker, who directed Naked Gun, Airplane, all those films, and all these other fascinating people just because we asked. And so for me, that was extremely formative as a child to say that boundaries are only put up if we don't ask to go past them. And so for me, even in the digital era it's easier than it's ever been because now you can just shoot an email, make a phone call, send a message. What's the worst they're gonna do? Tell you no. So it's okay to respond and ask. What's not okay is to pester and there's a very big difference between the two. Um, And that's why I think that Twitter and Facebook and platforms like that can be good because if you can, strike someone's attention, if you can get their attention, then there's a digital kind of relationship form. They have an idea for your tastes and what you like and what you don't like. And then maybe, perhaps maybe, there might be some kind of relationship that can come out of that.
0: Can you give examples of follow-up versus pestering? Because we all think we have the project. I think it's just it's just human nature. We think, sure. but ours is different. So. What is the, what's the difference between pers- persistent, polite follow-up and peskiness?
1: Well, one of the things I like to do for following up with projects or you know, if I had a meeting, I pitch something and say I haven't heard back for a while. Um, I try not to send emails or make phone calls on a weekly or daily basis. And I've seen people do this, where they had a meeting and they're like, oh, it was so great to meet you, blah, 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 and then a week later, they haven't heard back, oh, hey, it was nice to see you again. And then a month later, whatever it is, they keep going and going and going. Uh, In my own experience, and also talking to executives, no one responds to that, Uh, but what they do respond to is they respond to knowing what's going on with you and what you are doing. So one of the things I like to do is every six months, every year, whatever it is, say I haven't heard from someone in a while, I might send them an email to say, hey, Haven't heard from you in a while. I hope your life is going well, your projects are going well. I just wanted to let you know about this thing I just made. Here it is, hope you have a great day. Very simple, very short, very direct. Uh, Because something that no one does respond well to in Hollywood are five paragraphs of well-written prose. They want to read a one or two sentence, very efficient dictum about what your point is, because they get hundreds of emails a day and don't have time to read your eloquent soliloquy on, on what you've been doing and what you need from them. And I think that is the differentiator. Instead of making it all about what you want, tell them about what you're doing and engage them. What can you do for them as opposed to what they can do for you? Don't make it so transactional, make it broader.
0: And keep it brief.
1: And keep it brief. <laughs> Very brief.
0: I saw an IndieWire post that said uh, three TED Talks every filmmaker should uh, watch. One of which was Andrew Stanton, writer of wall to- mm. Toy Story, John Carter, etc. And he says, because it's a great TED Talk, the audience wants to work for their meal, meaning they want to solve a puzzle or a story. And I hadn't really thought about that. So how do you think that you make the audience work for their meal? Let's take Desires of the Heart. How would you say that you worked to make the audience kind of hang in there, try to follow the puzzle without showing them too much? Mm
1: -hmm. That's a tricky balance you follow as a filmmaker. Um, One of the things that I have an issue with at the moment in most of the mainstream films, I think, is that A lot of directors and filmmakers and screenplays are making films that end with periods that give you this very distinctive, this is the world, this is how it is, and this is the ending and it all wraps it up in a nice tiny little bow. And I think that if you want to make a more effective film, some of my most favorite films always end in a question mark not the period, because when you leave the audience with a question, you're doing two things. One, you're trying to give them something to solve on the journey of making the film, but also when you leave them as the credits come up, you're leaving with something to ponder, or something to think about, with something that may be not fully resolved, the ambiguous ending, if you will. And with Desires of the Heart, that was something I really tried hard to do throughout the film, to kind of be leaving these little clues throughout the way, but not answering all the questions. And even when you get to the end of the film, I tried to leave it with a question mark as well, instead of a definitive ending, because I believe that viewers are intelligent and you should give people the opportunity to interpret endings and interpret your film as you progress with it. Uh, if you're constantly giving them those periods, I think you're treating your audience with disrespect.
0: What are three things every filmmaker must watch or read?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I'm biased because my favorite film of all time is Network. I think everyone should watch Network. Uh, and there's a couple of different reasons why they should watch Network, the first of which is it's a brilliant screenplay. It's perhaps the greatest piece of film writing ever done, Paddy Chayefsky's screenplay. Uh, is not only astute and prophetic, but it's also hilarious. It had this vision of what the future could look like, and if you look at today's media landscape, indeed, most everything he wrote about in that film has come to pass, Uh, but it also did it in a way that was sharp and astute and really character-driven. I think people should watch that for those reasons, the overarching themes, but also how he developed his characters. Sidney Lumet, one of the things that not everyone knows about him is that in his early career he started in television, live television, and in those days in the 50s, of course, there were three cameras, maybe four, and when they had to switch lenses, they didn't have a zoom lens, so they'd use primes. And by having that experience in his toolkit, when he got older and started making his films, he could instantly tell you what kind of scene needed what kind of lens without ever seeing the lens because he already had that in his visual memory. And that's another reason people should watch Network because it is blocked and framed in such a specific way that's motivated by character and motivated by performance that every filmmaker should see why that works because then they would think more about what they do in their own work it's not just about throwing the camera and shooting a scene it's about thinking about how does the camera motivate the performance because that should be your first job as a director and that you have to do in tandem with your dp so watch network the second thing you should do is start reading some showbiz biographies i don't believe in reading film books. Uh, I've read a lot of film books, but if you're aspiring to read film books, I don't know if that tells you anything. It tells you about mechanics, it tells you about structure, but honestly I think all of us are programmed with a idea of what film structure is because we watch movies, we watch television shows. So instead of reading about it, read about other people's journeys and how they got to the place that they've arrived at. Uh, I think that's really important, and there's a plethora of those you can read. You don't have to pick one in particular, although again, I'm partial to Sidney Lumet's making movies. Third thing you should do, and this is the thing that I think a lot of people overlook, and this is also reading. Read showbiz trade publications, and books about show business because as a filmmaker if you want to be a working professional you're going to be working within the framework of the film and entertainment industry. If you don't understand what executive has worked at what company and where they're moving to and what their history is, you may have a very hard time when you sit down with that executive if you can't engage them on some of those things and understanding some of those those issues. For example, um, in 2010, I was at the National Film Festival for Talented Youth with my film Followed. It's the largest uh, film festival in the world for people under 23, and Dana Brunetti was there and all these fantastic producers. And I made a good impression with the chairman of the CW Network. Uh, at the time, I didn't know he was the chairman of the CW Network, but he invited me to uh, their uh, upfront presentation in New York, and I graduated from college the week after, so it was this crazy, crazy time. And when I got to the CW after party I found out that I was the only person there that was not with the network and Tom Sherman walks up and and shakes my hand is like hey I heard about you were here and I knew Tom Sherman because I knew my showbiz history he was the executive that developed Lost, Desperate Housewives, Grey's Anatomy he was a huge huge figure in television and he happened to be working now for the CW and so I could talk to him about those things to say, you know, I love Lost. I love what you did with that. And then years later, when I'm reading the book Disney War, I get to have more insight as to the behind the scenes machinations of what went on. And so I think that that's something you should do because you need to understand the breadth of it. It's not just about the creative. It's just also about the business and you've got to put those two things together. So watch Network read some entertainment biographies and read the trades and read books about what happens in the business.
0: I think what's also interesting is on a lot of these entertainment biographies there's a stall, an mm-hmm. iceberg that happens in a lot of these careers and then usually there's a resurgence from there and I think that's important too that people realize that it's not just like oh just climbing up and then it's all happy-go-lucky. No there's a lot of things that there's pause for reflection and
1: yes and it's it's constantly about reinventing yourself and reevaluating your career and I think that when you read and and have mentors it's not just about reading entertainment biographies I also think it's important to surround yourself with experienced entertainment mentors that can help guide your career Uh, you learn about those roadblocks and you learn how to get pass them and move through them. Uh, That's not to say that someone else's roadblock is something that you're also going to go through, but you might take something from that that can help within your own, because I do believe that everyone's journey is very unique. Uh, There is no clear-cut way to make it in entertainment. There is no way to get into the business. Everyone has a different story and a different path. Uh, But when you surround yourself with people and when you read things that give you insight before you actually meet those people then you too can figure out how to advance your career.
0: How much do you worry about how you're going to make money from filmmaking in the next five to ten years? Does it because it's one project to the next and there's, it's not a guaranteed you know, 40 hour a week job how much do you worry about that?
1: Oh i I'm constantly terrified about paying my bills. People tell me it's irrational, <laughs> but i I'm constantly terrified uh, because. It, nothing is guaranteed in the film business. And I think it's important perhaps that I do have that healthy, terrified thing in the back of my head. And I've been fortunate so far that when I'm not directing a project, I might direct an ad campaign, or I might do some kind of commercial or do some kind of uh, something that's about storytelling, but not storytelling in a film. Uh, so those are ways that I pay my bills when I'm not directing other projects. But I'm always worried about that. I think that if you ever arrive at a point where you're not, perhaps you've gotten a little complacent because then you're kind of this uh, Jack Dawson on top of the world kind of thing and the Titanic's about to hit and you have no idea. You've got to always be prepared and I think that having that healthy skepticism not only about your work but also about your career and your future uh, enables you to work a little bit harder in the present.
0: So if you're involved in one project and you know it's going to end on this date, do you are you already planning for the next or do you give yourself a couple days of downtime and then regroup like how how is it that you keep stuff in the pipeline? Cuz sometimes it all it comes all at once and you can't space it out.
1: That's true. Sometimes there are moments in your career where everything does come at once. So what I try to do Uh, If I have a big project that I'm working on is I try to schedule vacation in advance of the project So say for example, I have a film that ends or a project that ends on April 10th Uh, I might schedule a vacation to Peru or Turkey or somewhere for two or three weeks after that So I just step away entirely and I make myself do it because when I step away that enables me to reset and refresh And whilst I'm making that project before I go on vacation, I'm always trying to figure out what comes after. Uh, I try not to be in a position where I have no idea what comes next. It's the same thing uh, that I kind of deem as taking your career seriously. When you finish a project, whatever it is, it may be a movie, an ad campaign, documentary, a book, whatever it is, people are gonna ask you what you're doing next. And if you can't identify that, or if you can't say, well, here's a screenplay I wrote, or here's a project that I've been developing, Uh, people don't see you as playing that long-term game. You've got to be able to play the long-term game and really say five to 10 years from now, this is what I want to make, this is my plan. It may not come to fruition exactly the way you expect, but if you have some kind of pathway to get there, you're gonna have a lot better chance.
0: Mm I've heard a few people say that they love that space of the unknown. Mm-hmm. That they I actually don't. you don't like no, it. Okay. I
1: do not like the space of the unknown. Uh, I think that for me and and perhaps this has to do with me losing my father at a younger age unexpectedly. Um, I think that For me, I always want to have an idea of what I'm doing next. Now, that's not to say that I'm not open to a project that might come across my desk or something new. That happens all the time. But if I don't have an idea of what the next two or three things are going to be, that makes me panic because of the financial reason you just talked about. Because then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. I'm not going to be able to live in a lifestyle that I'm comfortable with. Uh, What am I going to do? And so I think for me, it's always knowing what's going to come next having an idea about what it is so i can be thinking about it and plotting it creatively talking to actors and dps editors my team that i like to work with and and really understand that but if something new comes across my desk that can be exciting and you have to be open to that as well
0: okay great
1: but vacation is just as important Vacation is very important, I think.
0: Yeah, that's true. To get yourself out of I
1: think it's super important. I mean, for me, not everyone does it, but like, you know, everyone has their own thing. But for me, it's when I do a big project, I go overseas. I go far away for several weeks. That's for me what I do. And that enables me to really reset.
0: Do you think it's just the physical act of getting out of LA? It's it's not just about LA. It's
1: like the US in general. It's like leaving. like physically picking up and saying, I'm in a foreign country and I'm not turning my self-service on, it's off and you can't reach me for three weeks because that enables me to do a couple of things. It enables me to, uh, to see things in a different light, to see another culture and understand something. I think that's so important as a filmmaker. You've got to understand other things, not just what you're familiar with, which comes back to my Upbringing in a small town where I had to always imagine things. Now I'm at a place in my life where I can actually go see things and do things. And so I think that for me, that's really important. It's it's something I need. It's sustenance. I, if I if I stay in one place for so too long, I feel really cagey.
0: Well, it also brings me back to your documentary mm-hmm. with uh, your former classmate Caleb. Yeah. And um, you know, he talked about in the film. Uh, and I hope I'm not giving anything away, yeah. but that once he got this cancer diagnosis that he realized that he and his wife had been living for the weekends mm-hmm. and i think that's a that was just really that just really struck me because i have to tell you i was afraid to watch the film because i was afraid it was going to make me depressed and so but i did and it was really an eye opener because it was really about them noticing their lives and realizing mm-hmm. whether there's a cancer diagnosis or not that time slips away and what are we living for Is it just to buy the next big toy?
1: You know, I'm thrilled you saw it that way because that's really the film I intended to make, so I'm excited you saw it that way. Um, Yes, I really thought a lot about time with a few things about cancer, and that was one of the things that really struck me, uh, especially now that I've even hit my mid-twenties. You know, I'm 26, and for some people at my age, I've done a lot more and some people a lot less, but I think very much about what my pathway is going to be as a filmmaker, the things that I want to make and the things that I want to do and when I had the opportunity to tell Caleb and Jada's story, it struck me that they too were thinking about that a lot, and that they were in this nine to five job, that they were living this nine to five life, they were newlyweds, and then this thing happens that completely changes the trajectory of their life, stage four cancer that could mean a diagnosis of death. What do you do with that? What do you do with your life? And if you live, how do you move forward from that and make modifications to the choices you make? You know, I had that experience when I was 13 when my dad died unexpectedly but most people in their 20s, that's not when you're supposed to face death in the eye. You're supposed to be living your life and going to music festivals and going to clubs. You're supposed to be having fun, but not sitting down and facing reality. And I think that the moment that we all can face reality is the moment that we can really think about where we want our lives to go. And with a few things about cancer, I really wanted to do that.
0: Mm. And I think too, uh, losing a parent at an early age turns you into an old soul, you know, mm-hmm. where you you're, you know, more mature for your years. Did you see that turning point with the two of them?
1: Absolutely, mm-hmm. I saw that a week into it. It was incredible. There was a, there's a moment in the film that I think is pretty powerful where they start talking about what they want their lives to look like, and. I think that that was their moment when they realized it. There was a moment in the hospital that someone that was supposed to have a good prognosis, they were like a patient in another room that was nearby, those about the same age, died suddenly. And they realized in that moment, you know, this isn't really a game. This is this is real. And that's not to say that it wasn't real for them before that moment. Of course it was. But it was in that moment that they really got to see firsthand the fragility of life and how temporary it can be, and the moment that we all can acknowledge that is the moment that a lot of us can free ourselves from the confines of what we think is possible. Uh, Once we do that, I think then anything can become possible for us because then we realize our time is limited and the choices we make directly impact what we are capable of doing.
0: Why did you ask um, Caleb and Jada if you could film them? That's that's. It's a good story, Um, actually. I, um, I hard thing to look at. It
1: is. I, I had been out of touch with Caleb for about five or six years. Um, We were fraternity brothers together. We were pledge brothers in 2007, and we met in a ditch outside of Georgia Southern, blindfolded, before our initiation party, and then we went through eight weeks of pledging together, and we were fraternity brothers. And I hadn't seen him for several years because he had uh, transferred to Georgia Tech to finish his engineering degree, and he kind of fell off, uh, as time does. That's one of the things about time. It's not that friendships or relationships are necessarily divorced, but sometimes time has a way of separating us. And so on Facebook, after not seeing him for five or six years, he announces that he has stage four Burkitt's lymphoma. You know, I start crying. And I had no idea what was going to happen. I was sure he was going to die in that moment. I was like, this, he's going to die, and he's 25, and he just got married, and I haven't seen him in six years. I felt guilty because this was my friend, and now this thing happened, and I would wasted six years of my life not being part of his life. And so I sent him a message and said, you know, hey, I see what happened. Is there anything I can do to help? And almost five minutes later, he sent me a Facebook message back saying, uh, yeah, in fact, I want to make video blogs for my friends and family to let them know what's going on. You'd, you'd be a perfect pl- person to do that. How can you do it? And so I go meet with him in the hospital, and uh, which was really difficult, you know, at the time that was really hard to do. And. Uh, we talk about it, and I said, you know, we'll make the video blogs, I'll do it, but why don't we st- take this a step further and make a documentary about it, uh, because I think that would be a better way for you to help people, but we won't tell anyone we're doing it. We'll film it in secret, and then we'll make the video blogs every month. So what I did was I made video blogs for him every month that we put online as he was in the hospital, and in the meantime, behind the scenes, without everyone, anyone else's knowledge, uh, I gave them a camera to film their own stuff stuff so I wouldn't be invasive to their treatment process. They drop boxed it to me every week. I would review the footage and give them notes. I'd bring in a small film crew of about three people every weekend and we'd film with them at home or in the hospital, wherever it was. And over the course of about six months, we culled this tremendous amount of footage and started whittling it down. And once we had the documentary finished in in November, uh, we started talking about it. And that's how we did it.
0: How is that to film someone that you're close to like that? I mean, I know you had been separated for like Mm -hmm. five years, but uh, I mean, during, uh, was it weird at first? Was it, uh, I mean, it just, it just seems like a difficult thing to do. It
1: was a very difficult thing to do. It's honestly, probably the most difficult personal, professional experience I've ever had as a filmmaker because it was very raw to me, especially at the beginning because we didn't know what was going to happen and you don't know how the story is going to unfold because it's literally changing day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, and you're making it live. Uh, So you have no idea how it's gonna unfold. It's not like a documentary where you have talking heads and you're interviewing people in different places. This is life, this is real. And for me, The difficulty of that became less and less as we started going, not on a personal level but on a professional level because when you're a filmmaker, eventually you get to the point where you're trained to separate what's happening personally with a subject or with an actor or with someone you're working with and what has to be done on the professional scale. Those two professional personal boundaries change I think after a while and so for me there came the point in which it was able I wasn't able to really separate that and focus on the filming but that doesn't distract from the personal impact that it had on me initially and throughout the entire filming process for sure and that was hard.
0: And the hospital was okay with you all being there? Uh,
1: Well, I had to work (laughs) with that. Before we started filming, I had to chat with the hospital lawyer and uh, their publicist to chat about what we intended to do because, of course, and justifiably so, they were probably terrified we were making some expose, and (laughs) I would have been terrified if I was in in their shoes too because they had no idea what we wanted to do. So the agreement we came to is that I wouldn't film any doctors or nurses. But really, I didn't want to film any doctors or nurses, and when you watch the film, you'll notice, In fact, that there is a distinctive lack of medical professionals in the film, and that was intentional, not just because of legal reason. Uh, I came to realize as we were making the film that I was much more interested in making a film about the personal journey of cancer, not the medical journey, because uh, so often Cancer impacts so many people. Everybody knows someone that's had cancer. But I found that when you say the term cancer, no one actually knows what that means. Or like, oh, you're in chemo, or oh, you're in a hospital. But they don't understand that unless they are part of the day-to-day process of treatment. And so for me, I thought by eliminating the medical component, if we're successful with the film, uh, we can show people that other half that they really don't understand.
0: James, do you feel like independent filmmakers are getting better as business people or do they still have a long way to go?
1: I think there's a very individual to individual basis uh, is the answer to that. I think that many filmmakers have realized that there are avenues to create that they can monetize because we now do have so many platforms. I'll give you a great example. Uh, I don't know if you know who Crystal Chappelle is. She's a soap opera actress. Uh, and and when the soap operas started to go off of network television, there were a lot of people that started going out of jobs because if you work in soaps, that's kind of what you do. It's very hard to cross out of that, although there are plenty of examples, but in general, most people that work in soap operas will always work in soap operas. And And so what she started doing was creating her own web series, Soap Operas, using all of the fans and all of the people that watch them religiously every day on television at 12 o'clock, whatever it was, to create their own stories with their own parameters, without the network standards, without the broadcast standards. And they charge $20, $30 a season. And if you get, you know, 5,000, 10,000 people to sign up for that, which they did, they can monetize that. They can pay everyone normal rates. People can keep living and working and doing. And that's a good example of how the internet and all of these new platforms have created new ways for people to take their projects directly to the people that will buy them, as opposed to making something that's mass market. You know, it's not like making The Avengers for everybody. In independent film, especially with this new era, we now have the capacity to say, okay, what is the number that makes sense to make this project for? And who is the people, who who is the people, who are the people who are going to watch the film? And if you can identify that, Uh, then suddenly you can figure out ways to monetize your projects. So I think that people like Crystal Chappelle and there are plenty of other examples are doing just that. They're finding their audience because they know who their audience is and then they're going straight to them and cutting out the middleman and that's how you do it.
0: We know a lot of uh, 20-year-olds or or maybe even a little bit older who want to make movies but they haven't. Is it ever a struggle for you? Do you ever feel like you have so many ideas, but for some reason you feel like your hands are tied or you don't feel like that?
1: I think that in recent years, I don't feel like my hands are tied as much because now I can point to work that I've done. And I think that's true if you're 20, 40, or 80. It doesn't really matter how old you are if you've decided you want to start making films. But what does matter is that you can point to your body of work. Whether it's good or not is a whole other topic, and I'll leave that for other people to debate. But if there are things that I've done that people have enjoyed, then I am more likely to have the leverage and capacity to make other things that hopefully other people will also enjoy. And so for me, in my earlier years, it was a little bit harder because I had to fight for credibility, and that's because of age. And I'm not saying that is necessarily unfounded, but perhaps sometimes unfair because when you're 20 years old and you want to run off and go make a film, why does a 40 or 50 year old financier need to trust you over the 35 or 40 year old that has years of experience, that's the adult in the room, that can command more presence. And so for me, starting so young as a filmmaker really allowed me to hone my communication skills also honed my ability to talk to people in different ways so that they would understand and hopefully appreciate that I would be credible and that they could trust me with their money and their respect. That I wouldn't do something that would dissuade them from following through because I would follow through with my own work. And so I think the answer is really it's how you present yourself and how well you know what you're talking about. Don't oversell or overpromise things you can underdeliver. Never do that.
0: Hmm. Is there a point though where you can you can undersell yourself?
1: Oh, absolutely. But I would argue that's maybe better to undersell yourself at the initial onset because if you can do things that people don't know you can do or don't think you can do, you surprise them. And when you can surprise them, then you have the capacity to make people excited about what you're doing. And so I think sometimes underselling is perhaps more valuable than telling them everything or overselling.
0: Hmm. Is that due to expectation? Let's suppose you tell them, oh yeah, and you embellish what you can do and then you somehow fall short, but if you undersell yourself and then that's like the sort of unplanned surprise to them. Absolutely
1: uh, and I think that in general people like unplanned surprises. They like to see things as a surprise. Uh, I mean it's even using the example of going to a theater and seeing a film and the question mark instead of the period if you're always asking yourself what's going to happen next what's going to happen next if we're not telling you what to think in a film i think it's the same thing for production and the same thing for development if you're constantly showing the people you work with that you have something unexpected within you then they can get excited about your vision and what you want to do because they know that this person has something within them that will constantly surprise. And I think that if you can find that, then you can find success.
0: As a director, what is your process for looking through a screenplay before production and making it a better story?
1: Mm. Well, I've never read a screenplay that I didn't think needed some sort of tweak. I've never read a script and been like, that is the perfect screenplay, because I think that it is true that every work of art, including screenplays, because they are a work of art, can find something within it that you can change or modify or improve, because every person that reads something brings a whole different set of experiences to what they're reading. And so for me, when I look at a script, I'm looking for a couple of things. I'm looking for characterization. How do the characters evolve as we're reading the screenplay? What do they start out with and where do they end up? Secondly, how does that characterization tie into the theme of the screenplay? What are the themes of the screenplay? If your screenplay is effective, the themes and characterization should weave together seamlessly. Uh, because the characters develop the theme and the themes develop the character. And the next thing I'm going to look for when I'm reading that script, what is the pace at which it unfolds? Is it moving at a speed that makes sense? Is it too slow? Is it too fast? And where are places that that staccato kind of messes up where is it that doesn't necessarily work and so I'm going to work with the writers to try to find a way to blend that pace evenly throughout a screenplay because if it doesn't work on the page as the old adage says it's not going to work on the screen because you can't fix it as you're filming it it's a very difficult process to do I have rewritten screenplays as I have filmed before and it's a horrible horrible way to go about production Uh, so you've got to find those things at the onset and so for me it's always about finding the character, finding the theme, and finding the pace because if you do those three things in a script you'll probably find it to be effective.